welcome to the seventh episode of Roots to STEM podcast, a podcast where we talk to scientists about the path they have taken to get where they are today and the lessons they've learned along the way. I'm your host, Maggie. And I'm your other host, Seth. On today's episode, we have Aurora alvarez Buya, a fourth-year PhD candidate in the Lab of Organismal Biology at Stanford University, who's studying how poisonous frogs become poisonous. So cool. I'm so excited. One of the things that I really liked in this conversation with Aurora was, I think she has a really unique perspective on diversity and how to make people of all sorts of backgrounds feel welcomed in STEM. Well, I also really love that she's maybe not as traditional looking Latina as other Latinas are. And so, you know, she had that battle with people not recognizing her exterior as being the identity that she felt she was. And then realizing that she was allowed to pick and hold on to the identity that was hers. And I really love that about her story. Yeah, absolutely. I hope you all enjoy. Hi, Aurora. Thanks for being here. Hi, Steph. Thank you for having me. (laughs) This is so exciting. Okay. Can we start by, can you just tell us who you are, where you're from, and a little bit about the research that you do? Yeah. Um, My name is Aurora Alvarez-Buya. I grew up in California, very close to Stanford, actually, in a place called Half Moon Bay. Um, I went to school up in San Francisco. Um, And I'm in the O'Connell lab with Steph, and we work on poison frogs. So poison frogs get their toxins from their diet. They have these highly potent neurotoxins on their skin, and they get all of those molecules from the food that they eat. And Um, It's like a super fascinating process that they're able to take up these really toxic compounds without intoxicating themselves. Um, And we don't really understand how it works. And so my research focuses on trying to start to disentangle some of the mechanisms that could be involved in taking up toxins from your diet. Awesome. So how did you first get interested in science? Yeah, um... Well, well, I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit later, but I grew up around scientists. Both of my parents are biologists, but not only that, (laughs) on my dad's side of my family, um, which is who are in Mexico, um, all of my aunts studied something related to (laughs) either medicine or biology. Mm -hmm. And then also um, my grandparents um, were both biologists as well. And actually my grandfather's passed away, but my abuela who is 86 <laughs> still does science and has a lab and like is working through the pandemic, which is She great. has a lab still? <laughs> yeah. Whoa. What does she do? She does a lot of physiology stuff actually. So my grandfather and her work together for pretty much all of uh, my grandfather's career. Oh, um, I love that. Okay. Kind of story. It's a little bit <laughs> spicy. Um, my grandfather was actually my grandmother's professor and she really liked him. And so she was like, can I get a position as a technician in your lab? Ooh, scandalous. <laughs> um, yeah, but it wouldn't happen these days. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, I, I was very, very privileged to grow up around um, a lot of amazing scientists. Um, and that kind of also meant that everything growing up was very... Um, like a little bit of di- discovery oriented. So, you know, like nature walks would turn into like trying to identify plants um, and things like that. And so as a kid, I was actually um, 
I was, you know, trying to be rebellious. And so I was like, I'm definitely not going to do biology like my parents. And so I decided to do the thing that in my mind was the furthest from biology, which was um, astronomy and astrophysics. <laughs> I like that um, you chose that and not like art literature. <laughs> or yeah, <laughs> it's an option. <laughs> I had to be within science still. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I got really excited about astronomy. I like started reading a bunch of books and like magazines and there's these astronomy magazines where they have those like pictures of like nebulas mm. that are all colorful, which is like in real life, they're not that colorful. Those are like <laughs> <laughs> computationally, like the different colors are like different atoms and stuff. I don't know. But, um, you know, I would see those images and I was like, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. Like, this is what I want to do. Um, so I actually went into college thinking that I would be doing astronomy and I um, spent a summer down in Chile, which is where um, I have some family down there. So part of it, the motivation for going there was for that, but also because um, some of the like biggest and most important telescopes in the world are in the north of Chile, like in the desert area. Um, yeah, so I spent the summer down there doing some um, astrophysics and astroengineering stuff and um I just didn't like it that much and I was just kind of bored and I was like what's the point and it was like all just sitting like I was you know as a kid I was like oh I'm gonna like sit at a telescope and look at things and like make discoveries and that was just not what it was at all like sitting at my computer analyzing data um (laughs) you know so yep um anyway so that was kind of like a cue that like I I wasn't actually that excited about it Um, And so I kind of was fumbling around for a while during college. I ended up majoring in computer science to kind of learn a tool. Um, And then, yeah, and then I I thought like, hey, maybe what I'm missing is like that hands-on portion of, um, you know, work. And I think to get that, I thought maybe let me try out a biology lab since I know that involves a lot of hands-on work. And I just really loved it. It was like, the best job I've ever I had had throughout college and yeah um, and so was, you were doing a computer science major so how did you even like start to think about doing biology research like how did you find the faculty to work with and were you in class like biology classes as well or how did you make your way over to biology yeah I definitely started with the classes like I just started filling I mean I had my computer science course load and then I just started filling any kind of gaps that I had with um, biology classes. And actually, I think one of the first classes I took was biochemistry Mm -hmm. and I really, really loved it. And like I had, it was just, it was always funny in college because I struggled a lot academically. Um, and my computer science classes were always like very hard for me. Like I was always below average and like I had to work, I felt like I had to work so, so hard. I had to go to all the office hours just yeah. to get off, right? Like I would also like to point out for people listening that Aurora went to MIT. So like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, computer science classes at MIT are no joke. Yeah, it was, it was a struggle. I definitely, at times it was like a hanging on by your fingernails. Yeah. Um, but the, the, in this biology, in this biochemistry class, it just was like the complete opposite. Like it was fun and like it was still like a hard work and a challenge like it required time and it wasn't like an easy class but like I just enjoyed it so much more that it didn't feel like um you know it didn't feel like a huge weight to be like spending all this time on the Mm -hmm. um and so I think that was kind of the first tell um and then um 
actually, because of that, I started looking for bioinformatics internships because I was like, oh, I'll combine the two interests. Mm-hmm. And I ran it. I kept running into this problem of like just hating sitting at the computer all the time, mm-hmm. <laughs> which again, <laughs> now is ine- inevitable. But um, <laughs> yeah. And so I think that that kind of steered me toward trying to find a lab that lab component where I could actually be doing experiments um, and like seeing the biology happen and not just, you know, analyzing the data. So, um, and yeah, I've, I found this microbiology lab that took me as like a rising senior, which I think was, uh, I don't know, it's better to start earlier in a lab, I think, but they were like, yeah, join. And a really great grad student mentor who like taught me all of the lab skills um, and who was super supportive and like, really good about like explaining things to me when I was confused. Um, and yeah, and just also like the social environment of the lab. Like, I think that was something I hadn't experienced in a job ever before. Like all of the internships I'd had were like me sitting at my computer in a cubicle. (laughs) Yeah. Um, which, you know, some people are into that and that's totally fine. But like, I just always felt so lonely. And I think in a lab space where like, you know, like you have your baby, like the person who works next to you. And then like the whole lab is kind of open and like you're walking through the whole lab to use different pieces of equipment um, and interacting with everyone a lot more. It was just so much fun. And it, yeah, it felt like a really different, like it didn't feel like a job, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what made you decide to get a PhD? Like, did you sort of know as soon as you started working in the lab that you loved it or did you have to grapple with that for a while? Um, I did. But, um, so I, like a couple months in, I was like, I absolutely love this. This is like the most fun I've ever had. Um, and I also had had these like other kind of industry internships. So I like knew what the alternative was kind Mm -hmm. of. Um, and I knew that I liked working in a lab a lot more than the alternative. And so I was kind of like, okay, well, the way to keep doing this is either to do it as a technician or to do it as a PhD student. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, it was really the decision between taking a break and, you know, finding or like trying to take a couple of years as a technician in the lab to try to figure out, learn more skills and figure out what I wanted to do versus going straight in. Um, and I, it was a hard decision because I honestly did feel kind of unprepared to go to grad school. Like, <laughs> like I had taken some biology classes, but like not that many, mm-hmm. like I had never taken a biology lab class, mm-hmm. <laughs> which we've talked about before. It's like, I don't, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I did feel like kind of unprepared, but at one point I probably got some advice either from like the PI of that lab or someone else that was kind of like, just go for it, you know? Mm-hmm shoot for like the programs you're really excited about. And if it doesn't work out, you can take a couple years off in tech and learn more skills. Um, and if it does, I mean, I think especially the programs that I applied, applied to did allow for like some exploration, some rotations in different labs to try mm-hmm. to like figure out, um, you know, what, what I was interested in. So I did go for programs that were like very flexible in that sense and had a lot of options. Um, like, I think if I had gone into like a program where I was directly getting admitted into a lab that would have been much scarier. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And so one thing that you mentioned briefly is that your parents are both biologists. And so how did that influence your 
decision-making around all of this. And I feel like, I mean, I know you've told me little snippets here and there of advice that your mom gives you. That's just so sage. And so did she have any advice when you were thinking about how to choose a PhD and, you know, whether to work in a lab and all of that sort of stuff? Um, yeah, my mom gives the best advice. <laughs> She's like my number one life advisor. <laughs> Which I, I mean, again, is like a huge, um, I'm so, I'm so lucky to have my parents and, you know, they are amazing parents and I had a really awesome childhood and I am like, will eternally be grateful for that. Um, and for all the support they've given me through the years. Um, I think one thing that my parents always did really well, which I think is hard now seeing academia kind of from the other side is they always spent a lot of time with us. Mm -hmm. Um, and they like really prioritized my sister and I, and I think, Again, now being a grad student, my mom had me when she was in grad school, and now being a grad student, I'm like, how the heck did you do that, woman? Like, that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, like I, and I, you know, like I am just in awe of, um, you know, my my dad. I don't think ever worked a weekend when I was growing up. Wow. Ever, as like a new PI. <laughs> wow, that's so impressive. Yeah. So I. Yeah. Instead, we spent the whole weekend at Home Depot, obviously. <laughs> um, I mean, he was working, just not on science. He was fixing yeah. stuff. <laughs> um, but anyway, it's just, I, I think that is something that I'm, I think my parents, yeah, I'm, I think my parents are a little bit unique in that way. And I'm, I'm really grateful for them. And I think what I learned from them is really that, you know, science is awesome, but life comes first. Um, and I think that's a really important lesson. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's number one. Number two, I learned just by having, you know, sciencey parents is that, um, professors are people too. <laughs> yeah. And I, that's something I have to remind myself of because I think it's, I'm, I'm actively unlearning it as a PhD student. <laughs> there's just like weird power dynamics sometimes, but, yeah. um, you know, like growing up with parents who were, PIs, I think really kind of helps me realize that, um, you know, PIs are people too. And that doesn't mean that there's not a power dynamic and the power dynamic is important, but um, yeah, it, it kind of helps me approach sometimes those conversations, especially the difficult conversations a little bit differently, I think. Um, and then, yeah, the last thing, the third thing is I think my parents always taught me that like the reason you do anything, but I think especially science, given that it can be so hard at times, should never be like for the accolades or for, you know, whatever the, <laughs> the win a Nobel prize or whatever. Win a Nobel prize. Like you should yeah. always do it because you find it fulfilling and because you find it exciting. Um, and I think that, I mean, I think it's just easy to get caught up in, um, you know, the competition of it all and mm -hmm. the prestige and, um, you know, wanting to do the most amazing science. Um, but I think ultimately, like, it's, I'm really grateful that they taught me to like, kind of always keep in the back of my head that the reason I'm doing anything should be because I really like it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, mean, I find it fun and exciting. Um, and yeah, I, it's, I think a, a good lesson. <laughs> were they supportive of you when you were like, no, I'm going to be an astronomer. <laughs> and then when you were doing your CS degree or did they want you to be a biologist? <laughs> um, they were supportive of me. They, yeah. They've always been super supportive of me. Um, 
there were, like I mentioned before, there were some moments where I struggled quite a bit in college and, um, <laughs> and I remember coming home with a report card one, one year, um, where I had, I got, I'd gotten a pretty, pretty bad grade on like an intro CS class. Um, and you know, they were always supportive. They were like, my mom actually, um, yeah, I was like crying about like this bad grade type A <laughs> high overachiever. And my mom was like, you, and I, so I was thinking, should I switch majors? Right. And my mom was like, you can't <laughs> like, I she was like, you have to fail three times. Like this is one. If you, if you fail two more times and you still really don't want to, then you can give up and switch majors. But like right now you're just giving up because it's hard. Yeah. And like, not a good reason to give up. <laughs> yeah. I love that rule. That's so great. I feel like lots of people fail a class once, you know, or they went through their whole high school or whatever, always doing really well. And then they get to college and then the classes are different and it's just a different environment and they struggle. And then they're like, well, I'm just not good at this. I can't do it. And then sort of pivot away from those things. And so I really like that piece of advice in terms of don't just give up once because it's hard. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And I think I've stayed with the CS majors because I, it was really hard for me. It like was and I, I'm still not very good at it, right? It, but it was like kind of forcing myself to think in a way that was really unfamiliar to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I grew a lot from that. Um, yeah, and I, I yeah, I'm, I'm, I think it was really good advice to just be like, okay with being in a situation that's uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So can you talk a little bit more about your childhood growing up with two professor parents? I know you told me some funny stories about being in lab, just like doing things that... <laughs> kids would not typically be doing (laughs) (laughs) um yeah I'm trying to think like what's one of the funniest things um I mean I so both my parents worked a lot and um they like usually what we would do is after school me and my sister especially when we were younger um would just hang out in their labs um doing our homework in theory but then (laughs) eventually just like messing around and like um, you know, just running around and playing together and stuff. Um, and my mom was always really great. And she would set up these like little, like she had this like little folding table that she would set up in the corner of the lab. And she would set us up with like a little styrofoam box of ice and then like different little vials with like food coloring solutions, pipettes, oh. <laughs> like only half worked. Um, And then we had these, like, I think my mom had made them for, like, a Halloween costume out of, like, old blazers from the thrift store. But, like, we had these little lab coats we would wear. (laughs) And you would just, like, sit there, like, emulating, like. (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, That's so cute. Yeah, so that was a good one. We also, so um, one of our, one of my earliest jobs was working for my mom, re-racking pipette tip boxes. So, Mm. um, yeah, we would get like 25 cents a box and, uh, you know, nimble little kid fingers. You would like take the loose pipettes and re-rack them and then she would autoclave them. Um, Oh, and then another kind of funny thing is, um, so science fairs with sciencey parents were a nightmare. (laughs) My parents were so intense about science fairs. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was just, I mean, they, they were always great ideas, but it was just, especially like, you know, because you're in middle school and you're like starting to do like the bigger kind of like science-y, school science fair things. And, you know, my mom would have all of these ideas and I was just like, mom, no. <laughs> like, I need to do this myself. Um, 
But I remember finally, like, I think it was in seventh grade or something I gave in and I was like, okay, like we'll do like your idea, mom, which was to swab. You'll like this actually stuff. It was to swab the desks of three different classrooms <laughs> and then grow what like on, you know, Petri dishes mm-hmm. with the or whatever, grow what was on there <laughs> and then like count the number of colonies or something like yeah. that. Um, and so I would do this. I did this for like a week. Every day I would swab, you know, like she made me do like lots of replicates and all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, there was this one teacher whose classroom I was swabbing in who on like the second day caught me swabbing the desks and like yelled at me. <laughs> he was like, oh, aren't you swabbing my desk? And I don't know what you're going to find. And like, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> and I told her mom, I was like, I can't swab that desk. Like I can't swab that classroom anymore. Like the teacher won't let me. And she was like, but it'll ruin the whole experiment. <laughs> and I clandestine like swab like during in the middle of class trying to block it from view from the professor. <laughs> oh my god, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Okay, one more funny story, which is actually my sister's. Um, and this was one of the years where she was like, um, <laughs> like, I don't need your help. I'm going to do this myself. And so she came up with a whole experiment and her experiment was testing whether... Um, apples like if you cut an apple you know how it gets brown normally mm-hmm. the experiment was testing whether spit would stop the apple from getting brown <laughs> so basically <laughs> like, she would cut an apple and then she would ask people to like it and then she would time how long it would take um yeah is an <laughs> incredible experiment that's amazing <laughs> and so she like really- <laughs> She refused any help from anyone, right? She was like, I'm doing this on my own. Like, (laughs) this is my science. (laughs) A lot of ownership of it. Um, And then finally, she had, like, put together her whole poster, and she was showing it to the family, to, like, um, me and my parents. And she had, like, all of this, like, crazy, amazing data that, like, for some people, like, it took way longer for the apple to turn brown. And for some people, it was, you know, like, it was, like, just looked really good. And we were like, this is so cool, Camille. This is so impressive. Um, and she had lots of like data points. And my mom was like, when did you run all these trials? And my sister was just like, oh no, I just made up the numbers. <laughs> she was like a fifth grade or something. And my parents were like, oh my gosh. <laughs> 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 her data. Stomach <laughs> <Yeah>, dishonesty. <laughs> it was like the day before it was due and they like would not let her take that poster to school. And so then she had to like redo it really quickly, like with just us. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> It was very, it was very chaotic. It was great. <laughs> when we were little, my sister did it. Well, we weren't little. We were in like high school. My sister did a science fair project where she, I honestly forget exactly what it was. It was something about like resveratrol and longevity and fruit flies or whatever. I don't know. But I just remember one day she bolted up our basement stairs and shut the door really fast behind her and just had this like horrible look on her face. And she was like, the flies are loose. <laughs> <laughs> And so we set up like a million fly traps all over the house. <laughs> oh man. Jeez. <laughs> oh, yeah. Science fairs. What a time. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny that now we do these like poster sessions for science conferences that are basically just like grown up science fairs. <laughs> I know. I was talking, I think it was in um Maggie's interview where we were talking about she had been asking someone basically like what is a conference and like what do you do there like what's a poster there and she and she had been asking like oh is it like a science fair and the person she was talking to was like yeah I guess in a way 
it is like a science fair. Yeah. Like I like like science fair slash music festival for science. Mm, Yeah. With like the ongoing sessions and you have to like choose which one you want to go to. Yeah. And it's like sponsored by all of these fancy (laughs) like machine companies and whatever. Like the headliners, which are like the keynotes. The keynotes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I had never thought of it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So one of the things that I want to talk to you about is you do a lot of work in our department when it comes to promoting like diversity, equity, and inclusion in science. And you are Latina. And so part of a typically underrepresented group in STEM and, but you also have parents who are both biologists. So I think you have a really interesting perspective on sort of potential ways to promote diversity in STEM and also your individual role in that. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, like you said, I think I have a huge amount of privilege. I'm come from a lot of academic privilege, right? Like I grew up around, um, you know, people who had PhDs. Um, I'm white. (laughs) Um, but I think, we, so we grew up speaking Spanish at home and, um, you know, traveling a lot to Mexico and um, staying for a long since of time with family down there as well. And so I think that kind of um, from very early on gave me a lot of kind of cultural perspective and um, an understanding that what I was learning in my life in the U.S. was not like the ultimate truth all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Do you have an example of that? Yeah, I'm trying to think. I do. So when I was in third grade, I lived in Mexico for a year and I went to school down there. Um, and I think that year um, kind of taught me a lot about, um, I, well, I think it helped me connect really with like that part of my identity. And then also <laughs> it just taught me a lot about, um, you know, the fact that there are other ways of doing things. So like one example, right? <laughs> this is kind of a, a basic example, but candy in Mexico is very different. Um, mm. And when I first arrived there, it was like kind of shocking. It's like spicy. It has a lot of like tangy tamarindy flavors. It's amazing. But at the time I hadn't really like experienced that as much. And so being there for a long amount of time, going to school there, you know, like being around other kids, um, kind of, you know, I grew to really like Mexican candy. I still really like Mexican candy. Yeah, you introduced me to it and it's delicious. (laughs) (laughs) And I just remember coming back to the U.S. and I was so excited. I had brought, there's this one candy I really liked called Esquinkles and I had brought um, some Esquinkles back to my classroom in the U.S. to like share with them at my elementary school and I was really excited to share it. I was like, look at this amazing thing that like (laughs) I now love from Mexico. And I just remember like, you know, sharing it with my class and everyone kind of being like, mm. <laughs> what is, I even remember one kid was like, my mom told me that Mexican candy has lead in it. <laughs> and I was like, this moment of like, what, like, <laughs> like yeah. this little clash um, that was like very hard for me to, I think, process at that young of an age. Um, um, and then also like, I think, it's been um, like, I think that's something that like maybe I carried through my like younger years for a while. Like I remember growing up, it being a very common thing that people would ask me like, you know, what are you? Because mm-hmm. you have a long non-white last name. Um, 
and I would say like, oh, I'm half Mexican. Mm-hmm. And people would be like, mm, you don't look Mexican though. <laughs> what? Like, <laughs> and, oh. and I mean, it's, it's valid. And again, this is like, I have white privilege like that. That is a thing that I have. And I totally acknowledge that. Um, but then eventually, like that was always just very confusing to me. And eventually I started just saying that I was Spanish because it seemed mm-hmm. to like bother people less. And huh. it wasn't until I was like much older that I like, started unpacking that and realizing kind of how fucked up that is Mm. that like I mean you know like my heritage is Spanish (laughs) like we do family over there so like it's not like factually inaccurate but like the fact that there's this whole part of my family and of my life that is in Mexico that I was just like completely erasing in order to fit the expectations of like and the comfort of the people who were asking me Um, yeah But um, yeah, so I think experiences like that growing up and then also just experiences with seeing, um, you know, like I said, my abuela and one of my aunts are both scientists in Mexico and also the way that science works in Mexico is really different. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and when I was in school down there, I took science classes and I, you know, like I took classes down there and like experiencing how education was really different. Um, And just also like the resources that are allotted, especially to public education in Mexico. are, are very different than in the U.S. Um, I think has helped me value that like there are many different, you know, like there's such a huge range of experiences that are super diverse and beautiful and rich. And like, if you bring those together and appreciate them and let them flourish the way they, they should, <laughs> um, it can lead to some truly amazing things. Um, but if you do the opposite and if you create an environment where people don't feel comfortable or don't feel accepted or don't feel welcome, um, then you're not only is it wrong to make people feel that way, <laughs> but you're also like really shooting yourself in the foot in terms of like where you're going to be able to go with anything. Um, yeah. I know. Yeah. Some you're really passionate about in our department, making sure that or trying to diversify our department, but also making sure that people who are from diverse backgrounds, you know, it's one thing to recruit people from diverse backgrounds, right? And it's another thing to have those people feel welcomed and belonged and included in the department. And so I know you have, you are an HHMI Gilliam fellow, which basically is like an award to be able to do this. And so I wonder if you could talk both potentially about, you know, what you want to do with your award, but also just sort of broadly how you think graduate school or even undergrad, um, just higher education in general could be more, welcoming and inclusive to people of color. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think there's a ton of room for growth, right? Like, and I'm glad that we are all starting to have these conversations and I hope that it leads to a lot of momentum and change, um, in the future. I think for me, ultimately what it has always felt like it boils down to is just, um, community and building community and, you know, building community across the hierarchy of academia also, um, and in, in different little, in different sizes as well. So I think as far as I have seen, I feel like the labs that work best are the ones that are strong, honest, supportive communities. And I think the graduate programs that work best are the ones where a sense of community is fostered among grad students and among grad students and faculty, um, Yeah, and so maybe it's a bit simplistic, but I do think that like 
starting at that spot of community building and creating honest personal connections um, that, you know, are, have their biases checked also and are, um, you know, where people feel welcomed really. And that's not, it's, it's not a trivial thing either. It does require, I think, a lot of work um, because, you know, we are not immune to the power dynamics and the norms of this of society, which are racist. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think something that I felt um, that I felt was missing. And I, I think the way I, we went about it with some of the other first year grad students at the time who are actually my roommates now um, was trying to create more social events and like moments for people to come together. Um, and I think the power of that should not be underestimated ever. Um, you know, like I think places for people to come together where they feel welcomed and where it's not about who they are as scientists exclusively, but who they are as people um, and where those identities are valued. I think are really important and we need more of them in general. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think as you're saying that I'm thinking about, I feel like oftentimes if we're left to our own devices on making communities, that's when I think it's easier to fall into the trap of just like becoming friends with the people that look like you and are similar to you, you know? And so I think having opportunities that sort of like force everyone to, be in a community setting together and not necessarily force everyone, you know, but it's an opportunity where everyone is welcome and it's not sort of predetermined by, you know, the little friend group you've already made or whatever, and sort of trying to foster that sense of community right from the get-go and then throughout grad school as well, I feel like is, would be really beneficial. And yeah, so then I think for the Gilliam Fellowship, which you mentioned, which comes with some money for diversity and inclusion activities, um, Lauren my PI and our PI and <laughs> um, have been thinking about kind of like you were saying, continuing to foster that community in those conversations in the later years. Um, you know, and one way we do that or that we will do that as a department is through like a department-wide retreat, hopefully. Mm -hmm. um, but the Gilliam funding is not enough to cover a department-wide retreat. Yeah. So what we're thinking is, um, a diversity retreat for students who identify as part of an underrepresented group um, and kind of creating an opportunity for just like candid conversations and, um, you know, a moment to get thoughts and support um, and maybe even just a moment to vent in a place where you feel safe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I, I think the specifics of it, especially since we don't know with COVID, whether it will have to be virtual or not. Right we worked out but um that was kind of the idea of what we wanted to try at least this first year and if it seems like something that will be valuable for the future um per perhaps it's something that like we'll keep iterating on um but yeah I think you're right that more needs to be done especially like around where you and I are right now um you know the like three four fifth years mm -hmm. it's getting like a little bit rough <laughs> yeah and a bit isolating <laughs> Yeah, I think um, I think that's one place where our department can grow. And um, yeah, I'm hoping that we, you know, once COVID lets us and maybe even before that can start doing um, more community building stuff amongst the grad students at least. Yeah, yeah, I hope so too. <laughs> okay, switching gears a little bit. Um, what advice would you give to someone who is interested in pursuing a science-related career? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I think the, I don't know if it's, <laughs> yeah, I think the first piece or the main piece of advice is that like, don't, you don't need to feel, or you don't need to have it all figured out at any point. It's mm-hmm. broader than just science advice, but, um, you know, like I mentioned, I was, I thought I was going to do astronomy. I was like, so into that. I, um, you know, I like decided and I was like, the earlier I decide, the higher the chances of me making a super career out of this. (laughs) (laughs) I had all these like grand notions about that. And then I figured out it wasn't for me and um, pivoted and um, I think, yeah, be willing to put yourself in situations that are scary sometimes um, and pivot when you're not when you're not liking it anymore. Um, and again, that assessment of whether or not you're liking it is, can be difficult because I think often we tend to not like the things that are hard. Yeah. (laughs) Um, just because, you know, it's, it sucks to feel like you're not good at something. (laughs) Um, but yeah, if you are good at it or you feel like you have some level of mastery of it and you're still not liking it, um, I think that's a, always a good sign that it's time to, um, kind of switch gears a little bit and that's okay. Yeah. So master timeline. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, I, like when I started my PhD, even I came in thinking that I would do one like area of biology and now I'm doing microbiology, which is I've never done before. And so I feel like you can always change your direction. Well, maybe not always, but there's a lot of time to figure out what you want to do and a lot of room to play around with to figure out what you like and what you don't like. Yeah. And I think especially early on and early, I feel like up to like your PI really. Um, and maybe even then you still have, or until you have a job. Um, yeah, I think the earlier you can start exploring and like that can be even as early as high school. Now there's like so many high school summer programs where you can start doing research really early on. Um, And I think that's another, you know, like the earlier you can get into the lab, the better. I mean, it's not a requirement and like not everyone has access to research labs and like, that's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, like the earlier you can start actually seeing the real life science happening. I think like that's the place, which is actually some advice that I got from my dad when I was in college, when I was telling him about like wanting to explore biology, he was like, just join a lab, just try to join a lab Mm -hmm. and see what happens. Because like, that's where you actually learn stuff. Like, because that's where like the actual cutting edge research is happening is in the labs and where there will be people struggling through it with you and teaching you. um, And like, it's really kind of like a learn by doing process and so like the earlier you can just get in there and start messing around and like mistakes will happen and that's okay yeah I think the better yeah awesome what do you think is a misconception that people have about scientists um that we know what we're doing (laughs) (laughs) I think I think about this all the time I feel like the further I get in my education the less I know what I'm doing yeah (laughs) I have no idea what (laughs) Yeah, I feel like we are just learning more and more about all of the things that we don't know. The more that we learn, the more I'm like, oh, no, (laughs) there's that whole thing that I didn't even think about. Yeah, exactly. I think I'm just like constantly surprised and reminded of how complicated everything is. (laughs) Um, And yeah, and so I think it's, it's super humbling. I think it's like, it's a reminder that you know, we're going to do our best and nothing will be perfect ever. (laughs) Yeah. 
What's your favorite thing about being a grad student? The people I get to work with, like 100%. I just, it's so fun. You get to like meet so many amazing other grad students and so many postdocs. Um, and then like some cool professors too, but <laughs> mostly the grad students and the postdocs that you get to be around all the time. I'm just like constantly inspired by, and yeah, I'm just so grateful for that. Yeah. I feel like, especially in our department, which is pretty broad ranging in terms of the biology that we do, it's just so amazing to me to hear our friends talk about the stuff that they do. And it's just wildly different from anything that I do, but it's still all within the realm of biology. Yeah. It's just so cool. And it's so, it's just so nice. I don't know, in terms of being able to collaborate with your peers and stuff and have your friends help you with things that you don't understand. And it just feels very much more low pressure to have your friend explain to you how to run a linear model than uh, a faculty member, you know? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and also I feel like I get it more. Like I, I've, I, I don't think I ever realized this as much in college, but even in college, I think there's this thing where like when you have someone who's like in your same headspace explaining things to you, like I just feel like it meshes with me so much more. And yeah, like you said, it's way more exciting. Mm-hmm like it's inspiring it's like the best group project ever yeah you feel less dumb asking them questions not that you should ever feel dumb asking a question but it's just different asking a faculty member versus your friend a question and so yeah that's one of the things that I have said multiple times now but if I could go back and like tell myself things years ago it would be like ask people for help especially your friends (laughs) Yeah. yeah yeah I think we like there's this huge emphasis put on like mentorship in terms of, you know, finding PIs who will mentor you or other like older, wiser mentors. But like, honestly, and like, this is something that Jesse, one of our lab mates, I think really, like I had never thought of it this way until he mentioned it, but like some of the biggest mentors I feel like in grad school for me have been other grad students, grad students who are like younger than me, (laughs) you know, like earlier on and on in there. Um, Yeah. I I think just finding your people and finding your support system at any stage is just so important. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this. This is really great. This is so fun. I'm so excited to hear them. Thanks so much to Aurora for doing this podcast. That was awesome. Her story is unique and yet still super relatable. Just, uh, I love her. Like, if you guys can get to know her, do it. Absolutely, yeah. And so I didn't ask Aurora this during our interview, but if you want to get in touch with her, you can reach out to her on Twitter, which is at Aurora A. Buya, which is B-U-Y-L-L-A. Uh, so you can co- get in contact with her there. And then as always, you can get in contact with Maggie or I in a variety of ways. Um, feel free to contact us at our email, which is roots to stem podcast at gmail.com. Or you can find us at our website, which is roots to stem podcast.com. We'll be back again in two weeks. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>